Welcome to Keith and I Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Matt McManus of Jacobin Magazine says, Ludwig von Mises was a free market ideologue, not a hard-headed thinker. So that's the title, and he's going to make the case in the article. However, I don't necessarily see anything wrong with being a free market ideologue. A free market ideologue is someone who believes in decriminalizing all capitalist acts between consenting adults. Not exactly something that strikes me as terrible. A lot of progressives and uh, leftists that would like Jacobin Magazine would be uh, just strong ideologues and not hard-headed thinkers. For example, they'll commonly make uh, blanket statements that I totally agree with. They'll say, racism is inherently bad. It is bad to judge someone by an accident of birth, not by the content of their character. That's just an ideological claim. It's not saying, well, is racism good or bad? L let's run some tests. Let's uh, have these people be really racist against those people and then compare the results against non-racist actions. No, no, they make the blanket ideological correct statement that racism is bad. Sexism, they say, is bad. Homophobia is bad. Slavery, bad. Imperialism, colonialism, they'll even say profit or greed. They have no problem saying that things are inherently bad and should not be tolerated. There's nothing wrong with being an ideologue. But uh, the article goes on in the subheading. Ludwig von Mises, the influential right-wing economist, thought of himself as a sober scientific critic of socialism. In reality, he was a free market ideologue using dressed-up dogma to prove why workers should bow before their capitalist masters. So let's put Matt McManus's thesis to the test. Did Ludwig von Mises simply support workers bowing before capitalist masters, or was there a little more hard-headed thinking behind it? Quoting from Planning for Freedom by Ludwig von Mises, Mises says, what makes wages rise and renders the material conditions of the wage earners more satisfactory is improvement in the technological equipment. American wages are higher than wages in other countries because the capital invested per head of the worker is greater and the plants are thereby in the position to use the most efficient tools and machines. What is called the American way of life is the result of the fact that the United States has put fewer obstacles in the way of saving and capital accumulation than other nations. There is only one way that leads to an improvement of the standard of living for the wage-earning masses, the increase in the amount of capital invested. He goes on in Planning for Freedom to also talk about the importance of competition. So if Mises simply wanted workers to bow before capitalist masters, would he be telling the workers which process or set of rules would increase the likelihood that workers would have more leverage in the marketplace? You would think if he's a useful idiot of the bourgeoisie, he would keep this a secret and he would never tell anyone. So, so far, Mr. McManus's thesis is a little more ideological, not very hard thinking. Let's continue. Ludwig von Mises wrote a book called The Anti-Capitalist Mentality in 1956. He said, Capitalism is essentially a system of mass production 
for the satisfaction of the needs of the masses. It pours a horn of plenty upon the common man. It has raised the average standard of living to a height never dreamed of in earlier ages. It has made accessible to millions of people enjoyments which a few generations ago were only within the reach of a small elite. Doesn't exactly sound like someone who just wants to preserve bourgeoisie privilege. So what we could do is put this to the test. He says that capitalism is about serving the masses, not just the uh, 1%. Well, a lot of entrepreneurs who have engaged in capitalist acts between consenting adults, uh, the first would be people like uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. And he did this by increasing the accessibility to the common man when it came to access for traveling through steamships and railroads. He drastically lowered the price. He didn't invent these things, but what he did was appeal to the masses. When it came to Henry Ford, he didn't invent the car. What he did was he increased the efficiency of the production process of the Model T to make it more affordable for the common man. Rockefeller did not invent oil or kerosene. What he did was he perfected the refinery process. Andrew Carnegie did this with steel, not inventing steel, but making it more accessible to the masses. People like Sam Walton did not invent grocery stores, but he acted in such a way that made it so the average person had their dollar go much further than it otherwise would have been because he drastically lowered the cost of products and services. The Wright brothers, of course, you know, had a bicycle shop where they you know, reinvested their dollars into uh, building an airplane in competition with the federal government who was operating the Langley Project, trying to uh, create an airplane. The Wright brothers, of course, beat them. Jeff Bezos didn't invent books, but he made books much more widely available to the masses because he made them cheaper. Steve Jobs didn't invent computers, but he made them much more widely accessible to the masses. Hewlett Packard did not invent the printer, but made them much more accessible. So you actually see that there are real world examples of this market ideologue that actually come into play. So does Mises believe in workers bowing to capitalist masters? So far, there's no real evidence of that. I want to cite page 280 of Human Action. Mises says, the member of a contractual society is free because he serves others only in serving himself. In other words, in a free market, in a system of voluntary cooperation, you can't get a penny out of my pocket unless I voluntarily give it to you. You can't get a second of my time unless I freely associate with you. Under statism, you're constantly up for a vote and the psychopathic ruling class can steal $4 trillion every year like they do in America. They can conscript you into jury duty. They can conscript you into fighting wars based on lies, not so much under a free market system. Later in Human Action, Mises says, only those on the government's payroll are rated as unselfish and noble. This is a classic socialist scheme where they say, it's really bad if you're in the private sector and you seek money. Well, uh, do you think that Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham and Joe Biden and Boris Johnson 
and Vladimir Zelensky are just a bunch of unpaid volunteers. Do you think government teachers are unpaid volunteers who don't want money? They're just in it for the greater good. No, they want money. They're just as self-interested as the rest of us. So now the question is that now that we've both controlled for the experiment under every system, human beings seek their own self-interest, which system harnesses this inevitable self-interest in such a way to serve the masses? Well, obviously, the free market capitalist system, which allows consumers or employees or employers to voluntarily disassociate with bad actors, as opposed to statism, which forces you to associate with them. One more uh, quote from Mises uh, getting into his ideology. The issue, Mises says in Human Action, is not the right to form associations. It is whether or not any association of private citizens should be granted the privilege of resorting with impunity to violent action. It is the same problem that relates to the activities of the Ku Klux Klan. So the Misesian ideology explicitly says, I'm not against associating. Right now, when I'm talking to someone, I'm using the English language, a language I did not invent. What I did was I participated and I associated with others to uh, find out about these words and then use them in, in my own way. I'm talking onto a microphone I didn't invent. I'm talking into a computer I also didn't invent. I traded for it. Other people actually created it. When it comes to charity, people are constantly using GoFundMe, Indiegogo. It's not a, the, a disagreement. It's not a disagreement between should we associate or should we be all by ourselves. Everything we do is the result of things that other people before us have done. The question is, should we cooperate voluntarily or should some people, the state, the collective, the majority, the wise, the rich, should they have the right to coercively rule over the rest of us? That is getting at the heart of Ludwig von Mises' ideology. The article continues, he, Mises, excoriates liberals who are willing to allow any state intervention in the economy. Okay, first of all, that's incorrect. Ludwig von Mises supported a state police force. He supported the uh, state uh, monopolizing the court system. He supported a state military. So the idea that he wasn't willing to allow any state intervention is not even close to being accurate. The sentence continues. Willing to allow any state intervention in the economy to advance the general welfare, you're assuming that coercively intervening would advance the general welfare. Again, Mises is not against people associating with each other. He's against one group of people coercively interfering, a third party that does not have to bear the cost of the outcomes of the interaction. So it's not that he's against advancing the general welfare, as we've previously discussed. He's just against some people coercively interfering. The article goes on. The overwhelming impression one gets from reading Mises' many works is unrelenting dogmatism with more than a touch of xenophobia and elitism. Quote, You have the courage to tell the masses what no politician told them. You are inferior 
and all the improvements in your condition, which you simply take for granted, you owe to the effort of men who are better than you, Mises wrote to Ayn Rand in 1958. Yeah, there is nothing really wrong with elitism. For example, uh, what percentage of people do you think could write a show as funny as Seinfeld? I'm not sure if it's even close to one-tenth of one percent. How many people are as talented at singing or rapping as Eminem or... Adele, what percentage of people would you say are as talented at basketball as Kobe Bryant? There's a music elite, there's a comedy elite, there's a basketball elite in cooking. How many people are as good as Gordon Ramsay at cooking? There's a cooking elite, a very uh, small elite. See, genius comes in many forms. So the idea that, um, yeah, there are some basketball geniuses, there's also some engineering geniuses and there's some people who are pretty genius at knowing how to manage and organize other people. And that's why you have people like Steve Jobs earning uh, so much money because he's making a product that so many people appreciate. So there's nothing wrong with elitism. Uh, xenophobia, not really sure where that is coming in with the exception of every leftist who blames America uniquely for things like slavery and colonialism, even though all races and all continents have practiced uh, su such evil deeds. And not to mention elitism. Am I, under the socialist society, going to have as much power and influence as Jacobin Magazine or Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or the Pol Pot of whoever our new socialist uh, benevolent proletariat leader is going to be, of course, there's the iron law of oligarchy. Anytime people organize, it just makes economic sense when it comes to the cost-benefit analysis of putting some people at the top who have a lot of power and influence. So this is the classic scam of saying that something is bad and we pin it on capitalism. The reality is something is bad and it applies to human beings under any system. Communism, fascism, syndicalism, capitalism, free market, minarchism, etc. Article continues. According to Mises, market society alone was responsible for human progress since the Middle Ages. If other forces played a role, whether political groups agitating for universal suffrage or organized workers agitating for better conditions... These were either made possible by capitalism and therefore of negligible importance or were in fact a barrier to capitalism's beneficent advance. Yeah, I'm not sure why universal suffrage or organized, uh, first of all, workers organizing. There's nothing in Mises' work that's against uh, workers organizing. What you might be referring to is some people, whether they be workers bosses, people who are young, people who are retired, foreigners, people in your domestic land, using the state to coercively impose their will on others. Well, whether they're workers or any other demographic in society, Mises says that that decreases the amount of utility. His main argument is more freedom equals more social cooperation equals more chances for people to achieve their satisfactory ends peacefully and that leads to more wealth. When it comes to universal suffrage, I'm not sure why people voting on things makes things better, considering the average person is ignorant with regards to 
politics, history, economics, philosophy, morality, and logic. But yeah, uh, in short, uh, the, the reason uh, the, the world is great is uh, not because of statism or violence, but in spite of violence. Following the Nazi invasion of Austria, ooh, always, 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 they use N-A-Z-I. They never say National Socialist, even though that's what Joseph Goebbels, Hermann Göring, Adolf Hitler refer to themselves as National Socialists, probably because there's no principal difference between National Socialism, Socialism, and Communism. Uh, they all advocate initiating violence against peaceful people. Uh, all it was was uh, the uh, government uh, regulating a uh, different uh, organization. It's some people regulating others. No different than if Washington, D.C. is regulating Arizona. Mises and his family fled the continent and settled in the United States. So, I guess the author is advocating for the freedom of disassociation with government officials and freely moving to cooperate with other people. This sounds very ideologically libertarian. Mises, page 357 of Socialism, said, In the society based on division of labor and cooperation, the interests of all members are in harmony, and it follows from this basic fact of social life that ultimately action in the interests of myself and action in the interests of others do not conflict, since the interests of individuals come together in the end. Mises goes on to say in A Critique of Interventionism, page 112, society is division and association of labor. In the final analysis, there is no conflict of interest between society and the individual, as everyone can pursue his interest more efficiently in society than in isolation. So this gets us understanding where Mises stands and why he would be opposed to things like National Socialism. The author then discusses the calculation problem, saying Mises is perhaps best known for his writings on the calculation problem, which he claimed would bedevil any socialist society. Under capitalism, Mises explains, the price mechanism allows profit-seeking firms to determine what products consumers want and in what quantity. So we can recognize again a, a constant under both systems. Nothing is perfect. Statism, minarchism, anarcho-capitalism. The question is, which best reflects the preferences of the masses? Getting a vote between two politicians once every four years or giving them the freedom to freely associate and disassociate with producers of certain products or services to ask the question is to answer it. Article continues. I'd like to focus on the profound flaws of Mises's moral and political arguments for private property and capitalism. Mises often ahistorically lumps these together under the label liberalism, as in his book Liberalism. The program of liberalism, therefore, if condensed into a single word, would have to read property, that is, private ownership of the means of production. All the other demands of liberalism result from the fundamental demand. Side by side with the word property 
In the program of liberalism, one may quite appropriately place the words freedom and peace. So it is statements like this that make it seem like libertarians uniquely support property rights, and they favor things like property over people, when in reality all you have to look at is things like government spending or January 6th to find out that the statist or the progressive or the Jacobin is equally obsessed with property rights. They don't say, well, hey, anyone has the right to go into the Capitol and take whatever they want because I don't believe in property rights. You could go into the Pentagon and take whatever. You could go into government schools and take whatever you want. You can just go into any government uh, department of motor vehicles and take whatever you want. You could not abide by the Environmental Protection Agency because they're just trying to regulate your property and things that you're doing, and we're against that now. Everyone believes in some sort of property rights. However, they try to make it seem like we're anti-human and extra-materialist by saying we only care about property. What distinguishes the communist from the capitalist is the capitalist believes or recognizes the right of people, private property owners, to freely associate and or engage in contracts. The communist says, I know what exploitation is, and I don't allow almost all of the contracts that people choose to freely engage in. So both believe in property, only the capitalist or voluntarist believes in property and freedom. And when it comes to the word peace, a very wise man once said that war is the health of the state, meaning that in a time of war, the state could do things it otherwise couldn't get away with by scaring the population into saying, oh, there's this terrible thing uh, or group of people at war with us. But also, the state is the health of war. So when these Jacobins advocate that the government get trillions of dollars, well, they can often find enemies to go to war with. And if they have the ability to tax, well, they're more likely to spend that money on war if they don't have to work for it. They could blow it on things they don't really care about. If they're so powerful, they might have the ability to conscript people against their will. So therefore, the state is also the health of war because people don't actually have to bear the cost of their bad actions. Imagine if Barack Obama had to individually and peacefully and voluntarily raise money for the invasion of Libya. Not sure if, uh, if it would have happened. The article goes on. What makes the market uniquely powerful for Mises is his belief that through each person's pursuit of their own individual interests, they contribute to the overall well-being through mutually beneficial exchanges that in turn incentivize further economic growth. At times, he compares the market to something approximating a worldwide democracy where each consumer is allowed to vote with their dollars on what should be produced. Compare that to the political economy. When I buy something in the marketplace, I have an incentive to find out if it's good or bad. And if I'm ignorant, well, I have to bear the cost. In the political marketplace, if you will, I bear no cost if I vote for a bad politician. In fact, if the government does something bad, their incomes uh, or their government revenue likely will increase. I mean, imagine all the time you'd have to spend looking into agricultural subsidies, schooling, foreign policy, uh, d domestic policy, the history 
of what has uh, happened with things like the Great Depression or things like Spanish imperialism. It is so costly in time, money, and resources to get informed that most people don't care to get informed because at the end of the day, they have a one in a uh, hundred million vote. Therefore, voting or voluntarism and democracy in the marketplace is much more efficient and much more moral than in the political sphere. Article continues, while Mises acknowledges that some people have more dollars with which to vote, he is untroubled by this imbalance. Probably because Mises recognizes that it's an imbalance that exists always and forever. If everyone in America were given an equal vote, Joe Biden would still have more power than everyone else. Kamala Harris, even Michelle Obama, someone never elected to office because of her relation to someone who was elected, she has more uh, power and influence than 99.999% of Americans ever will with uh, with her institutional power. So under every system, what percentage of Cubans are as powerful as uh, Raul Castro or whoever took over from Fidel? What percentage of Venezuelans are as powerful as Nicolas Maduro. What percentage of North Koreans are as powerful as Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un? There's always this power imbalance anytime human beings organize. What percentage of uh, people in Finland are as powerful as the prime minister who wants them to join NATO? I've only heard from one person from Finland about whether or not they want to join NATO, and it's her. haven't heard anyone else. According to Jacobin, there's tons of equality all over the place in the political sphere. Of course, there's not. He thinks we should disregard moralistic demands for equality motivated, he says, by mere resentment, and instead realize that a rising tide rises all ships. Eventually, he suggests, liberalism and capitalism will bring about a high standard of living and worldwide peace for all. Not for all. There's no steel man, a perfect world. However, it's much more likely to do so than the alternatives. The article continues, If the aim is achieving the highest level of overall happiness for a society in which each person's happiness counts equally, then a relatively or even highly egalitarian distribution of goods subject to variation based on each individual's particular needs would seem like the only sensible distribution. No, it would not. I don't have a really good laptop because things were evenly distributed. People like Steve Jobs had a ton more power than everyone else. I don't have a really cool ceiling fan because everyone equally was informed and then they voted on how fans should operate. Same thing with microphones or mouses. The, the idea that distribution of goods or power uh, should be uh, equal is uh, c completely ridiculous. The second fallacy that's practiced here is they say, subject to variation based on each individual's particular needs, they want a highly egalitarian distribution of goods. What that is, is an end. That is a goal. What Mises is talking about is a means or a process to achieve said goal. 
So if we both agree we want the most people to have the most amount of stuff, or even if we want these things to be equal, which process or set of rules should we embrace to increase the likelihood that the most amount of people will have the most amount of access to products, goods, and services of higher quality and lower cost? What this person is talking about is the goal. What Mises is talking about is the process which he believes will likely achieve the goal. I'm sorry, not which he believes, which irrefutably in every case will achieve that goal that they allegedly want. The article continues, more importantly, in a world where the Nordic social democracies enjoy the world's highest standard of living. So I want to put that to the test. By what metric can we determine standard of living? From what I hear, a lot of Christian monks, a lot of Buddhists are extraordinarily poor and extraordinarily happy. The link I click on in this article does not account for that. They appear to be just a bunch of materialist uh, psychopaths who only care about property and monetary gain. But let's accept their premise and just talk about higher standards of living with regards to material equality. First thing we could do is look at the Fraser Institute's ranking of the most to least economically free countries and see where these Nordic systems compare to places like the United States. As you can see in the graph on your screen, all five Nordic states are actually ranked higher than America with regards to economic freedom when it comes to Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Sweden, and Norway. All of those uh, countries have more economic freedom than America. C common misconception. See, the problem is these people are really ideological and they're not real hard-headed thinkers or empiricists or scientists. They sort of just live in their head, not really anything to do with uh, the, the real world. So that is one way of refuting this thesis. Well, Nordic countries have thus and so. We can also go to one of the uh, great authors uh, from one of the Nordic countries, Sweden, a guy named Johan Norberg. His analysis of the issue is, the funny thing is that if the Sanders and Ocasio-Cortezes of the world made the United States more like Sweden, what would really happen? The United States would have to have more free markets, more free trade, pension reform with private accounts, a national school voucher system with freedom of choice and public funding going to private schools as well, low corporate taxes and no taxes on wealth, property, and inheritance. Why did we reform Sweden, Sweden like that in the last two decades? Because we had a taste of socialism and we didn't like it. This is one of the biggest myths of all time. Robert Lawson and Dr. Benjamin Powell and Dr. Tom Woods co-authored a book titled Socialism Sucks. The thesis written by Dr. Woods in the introduction is summarized as follows. Uh, he was a, a PhD from Columbia and Harvard University. He says, there's plenty to say regarding Sweden. One, its socialist policies were made possible by wealth created under an essentially capitalist economy as recently as the 1950s. Remember, governments best spent less as a percentage of GDP in Sweden than in the United States. Two, Swedes earn about 50% more in the United States in our supposedly wicked economy. And three, 
Since Sweden's explosion of social welfare spending, there have been zero jobs created on net in the private sector. Not to mention, it's what is commonly referred to as an abusive analogy. Denmark, Finland, and Norway all have between 5 and 6 million inhabitants, while Iceland has the smallest population with only 370,000 inhabitants, whereas America has 330 million inhabitants, many of whom are immigrants, all different ages, from all different countries. So, comparing the two is completely ridiculous. What you can do for an accurate comparison is to look at the population of the average Nordic country and compare it to a state in America that has a similar population. So the Nordic countries averaging between five, six million uh, people have an, or rather, have a gross domestic product per capita in U.S. dollars at about $68,000 a year per capita. If we compare that to a place like Massachusetts, this is a state in the northeastern part of America that has a similar number of people. We actually have a higher uh, GDP per capita at $75,000 in U.S. dollars. So that is an actual controlled experiment, much like a controlled experiment would be North Korea versus South Korea or East Germany versus West Germany, but no, they love to throw the Nordic countries out because people haven't really looked into them yet. Also, we could find that the United States has about a $63,543 GDP per capita, whereas Sweden, one of the main Nordic countries that's commonly referenced, has a GDP per capita of about $52,000. Another state in America, which has roughly... Uh, 8.3 million people is New York, and they have, this is just talking about the New York uh, metropolitan area, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, is about $74,000, so that still is more than the Nordic countries. So, it's incredible that Jacobin is criticizing Mises for just being an ideologue and not really being down-to-earth when meanwhile they make claims that have nothing to do with the real world. Another way we could measure the wealth of societies and which places are wealthier and why is by looking at states within America, the most free states, the ones that have the lowest taxes and least amount of regulation, lowest barriers to entry, versus uh, the least free states. There's actually a paper on this titled Equality, Liberty, and Prosperity by Anthony Davies, Megan Teague, and James R. Harrigan. And uh, the study that these PhDs found was that the more free people were in states, the more voluntary exchanges they made, the more competition there was, the more innovation there was, the lower barriers to entry, the more people had the ability to achieve their ends in life. So they actually not only had more wealth, but there was more economic equality and prosperity. So these are all the studies that empirically show that economic freedom is uh, the most beneficial way to arrange a society. If you want to go further, you'd have to analyze America, the average American, first the average Sweden or the average American Swede based on their ages, say maybe 30 to 55, those are higher income years. You'd have to control for gender. Women tend to 
uh, work uh, less in the workplace, work more at home. You'd have to control for uh, full-time versus part-time work. The uh, length of consecutive employment, women are more likely to uh, take jobs where they're able to leave and have kids. Uh, you'd also have to control for uh, which educational uh, facilities they enter and which degrees they attempt to uh, get degrees from, whether it's engineering or teaching, you get uh, big differences in income. So, of course, Jacobin Magazine doesn't account for any of that. It's just uh, socialist propaganda. Now, I want to get back to what I said at the beginning about Mises advocates the decriminalization of capitalist acts between consenting adults for the same reason. Any consenting adult should be able to choose their life partner. They should be able to choose which products to buy, which services to purchase. Anyone could try to influence them by persuading them or offering them an alternative. But at the end of the day, my body, my choice, my money, my choice, my time, my choice. So what the socialist is actually doing is what's commonly referred to as uh, by psychologists as emotional abuse. Uh, from Bustle.com, they compare you to others, a subtle but nonetheless nefarious sign of emotional abuse. If your partner is constantly comparing you to others as a way to make you feel inferior or not good enough, the socialist will always say, but Canada has fill in the blank, something that takes hours to verify and find the details of, but Sweden has blank. It doesn't matter. Either people own themselves and have a right to engage in capitalist acts or economic activities between consenting adults, or some other people rule them. Another way we could verify whether or not the high prices that are constantly pinned on American free market is the result of industries that exist in a more or less free market, because not every industry is equally taxed or equally regulated. In fact, Paul Krugman the progressive author of the book titled The Conscience of a Liberal, wrote a book in 2004. And in 2004, he said that 44% of health care coverage is actually funded by the United States government. So this is Medicare, Medicaid, the VA Veterans Association. And in 2004, we didn't have Medicare Part D that was implemented by Republican George Bush. We also didn't have the Affordable Care Act that had been uh, passed under Barack Obama. So it, back then it was still 44%, and he who pays the piper calls the tune. Producers focused on pleasing the government instead of consumers. They have no interest in lowering costs. Another way we could look at this is from the American Enterprise Institute. We could see which industries have the uh, most prices that are decreasing versus which industries are continuously increasing in price. And it turns out the most regulated industries, hospitals, college tuition, and medical care, uh, along with housing, are drastically increasing in price, much more so than televisions, toys, computer software, cell phone services, cars, and clothing, things that have the least amount of regulation. This is how you can empirically test the claims of the socialist. Again, I'm not even that big on it because I'm still going to advocate voluntarism and peaceful cooperation. I don't need to look at the studies of, well, uh, let's try Jim Crow laws and see if they work. Ugh, but by what metric? Who's going to do that test? I'm not even go. I'm not even willing to grant the 
a concept that some people have the right to rule others, whether it's Jim Crow, whether it's sexism, whether it's the economy. I, I don't have the capacity or care to uh, do such an experiment. Article continues, a truly global focus on utility would reveal vast disparities between different regions of the world with the rich shelling out enormous sums on goods of low marginal utility while the poor lack access to food, shelter, and water. Important note, uh, an increase in access to food, water, and shelter it does not come from socialists voting or socialists complaining or BLM and Antifa rioting, looting, and burning down productive facilities. It actually comes from competition, free trade, investment, and innovation. So they love to both shoot at the golden goose and complain that the golden goose is not laying enough eggs. They think everyone has a right to these scarce goods that only come as a result of the labor and efforts of others, and then they vilify the people who produce those goods. Any stringent utilitarianism would recognize there can be no argument, uh, okay, there can be no argument for spending $275 million on a luxury yacht when you could inoculate thousands of children against malaria for $10 a pop. The current U.S. government gets $4 trillion every year. You think another 275 is really about to turn things around? Well, actually, the free market is working on both. If you go to givewell.org, you can check out the Against Malaria Foundation, where you can actually see which organizations are stopping the spread of malaria. Believe it or not, Jacobin Magazine does not make the top 100. When it comes to things that actually solve people of malaria, it's people who take their scarce dollars and allocate it to places like GiveWell.org or medications like chloroquine phosphate or things like ACTs. But Jacobin is too busy vilifying the people who actually make life on Earth better for the rest of us. Article continues, One of the most striking things about Mises is his fairy tale understanding of liberalism's complex history, which he often couples with a dose of chauvinism and prejudice. <laughs> complex history. As opposed to the ideas and organizations promoted by socialists and Jacobin. You know, organizations like government, you know, since the days of Genghis Khan and Kaiser Wilhelm have murdered God knows how many people under the guise of helping people and civilizing people, uh, as if governments today in Russia or Ukraine or Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Armenia are not murdering innocent people. The nerve that these people have to criticize the voluntary sector uh, while governments commit mass murder on a scale uh, unthought of before is, uh, is just incredible. When it comes to chauvinism, the most uh, sexist thing that Ludwig von Mises ever said was that um, people who oppose the draft are the enemies of liberty. He actually said something to the, uh, the this extent when he said that, well, if we don't practice the draft and the National Socialists in Germany practice the draft, well, they're basically going to take us over. He was a man of his time. He was incorrect in that 
idea that he was born into. Uh, able to see through so many things, not able to see through the immorality of forced labor when it comes to the state. Of course, Jacobin has no principled objection to forced labor. All they care about is, well, I, I'd first have to measure the surplus value. C complete, uh, c complete nonsense. Article uh, continues. Uh, th this is uh, them criticizing the age of imperialism. All government is imperialism. Anything that Jacobin Magazine advocates is imperialism. When Washington, D.C. makes a law that Florida has to abide by and Texas has to abide by and Arizona, or when people in Buckingham Palace pass a law that people in the Isle of Wight have to abide by, it's imperialism. It's some people coercively imposing their will on others. That is socialism. It's national socialism. It's communism. It's syndicalism. It's fascism. They're all different wings on the same kamikaze plane of collectivism. The author then criticizes Mises for loosely saying the colonization of India was legitimated in part as an effort to bring civilization and markets to an allegedly backward part of the world. Look, all government is immoral and some governments are better than others. I don't like the South Korean government, but it's better than the North Korean government. Sometimes you just have to pick your battles. And second of all, this is the exact argument progressives have against those idiots in the South who are just so uncivilized. We have to have the Union invade them and impose our will on them or else they just won't behave in, uh, in the right way. And uh, uh, I don't care what the statistics say about minorities and their support for voucher systems. Uh, that They need uh, Washington, D.C. to uh, impose our will on, uh, uh, on the rest of them. Here is what Mises actually said about the concept of imperialism, quoting from Omnipotent Government, page 90. A nation, therefore, has no right to say to a province, You belong to me, I want to take you. A province consists of its inhabitants. If anybody has a right to be heard in this case, it is these inhabitants. Boundary disputes should be settled by plebiscite, quoting from Nation, State, and Economy. Page 34, Mises says, 2. The princely principle of subjecting just as much land as obtainable to one's own rule. The doctrine of freedom opposes the principle of the right of self-determination of peoples, which follows necessarily from the principle of the rights of man. No people and no part of a people shall be held against its will in a political association that it does not want. I don't know how much more clear Mises can be about opposing things like imperialism and supporting things like secession or anti-colonialism. That is all I have for you on this article. Thank you for watching. Keith and I don't tread on anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Check out my book, The Voluntarist Handbook.